there's kind of two main categories of prevention, if you will. Once you get altitude sickness, the medications and, and really things don't work that well. You're kind of hosed unless you drop in altitude. So I think prevention is huge. The best kind of studied and the, this, the easiest, most simplest way uh, is to acclimate and go up slowly in altitude. And they've actually studied this down to how much elevation you should gain uh, before like resting for the night and that kind of thing. So general rule of thumb on, you know, if you're someone who's very worried about altitude sickness or you've never been at really high altitude, you don't really want to go up more than 1600 feet per day. Rockcast is powered by Onyx Hunt, and for good reason. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app in the industry. Stay tuned for a Rockcast promo code. Thanks for tuning in on another Tuesday. I'm Sam Weaver, today's host of Tipsy Tuesday, a short segment covering rockslide.com tidbits, hunting news from across the West, with just a sprinkling of tips and tricks to keep you well-informed for your next adventure. Well, hunting seasons are in full swing across the West. And today's guest is Dr. Will Frey. He's a resident ER doctor out of California who's super knowledgeable about altitude sickness. I know with uh, all of our trips coming up to the high country, it's something that we want to make sure we're aware of and we're keeping track of our hunting partners. Welcome to the show, Will. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Sam. Uh, why don't you give us a little introduction about, about yourself? Yeah, so I'm uh, born and raised in Central California. Grew up doing a lot of backpacking in the Sierras with my dad. Did not come from a hunting family, but we... You know, did a ton of fishing and backpacking all summer. I, I did some trail crew work through college and high school um, and then ended up going into medicine. Found myself back here in the Central Valley. Um, I do, you know, a good amount of deer hunting here Cal in California up in the Sierras and then some stuff out of state. That's kind of the big picture. This is an interesting topic. I'm glad you reached out to me. I really haven't thought about it that much. And we were kind of talking off air and altitude sickness can kind of sneak up on you. The lower acute parts, you might not even know that you had until you hear what some of the symptoms are. So I guess we'll just kind of kick it off and, and you can kind of give us a rundown. Absolutely. And, you know, really it's a fine line between I just feel terrible because I'm at high altitude and I'm actually getting altitude sickness. There's not a blood test. There's nothing really definitive except for the symptoms you develop. One of the big parts of, and a question that kind of comes up on rock slide is, can I get altitude sickness from going to X altitude? And this has actually been pretty well studied. The majority, the vast majority of people are, are not going to have any true symptoms of altitude sickness below 8,000 feet. And as you go higher in altitude, that risk increases, but it's not linear. So you go from 8,000 to 9,000, really not a big difference. But as soon as you start going from 10,000 up to 11,000, all of a sudden that risk is exponential. As you reach a certain altitude, universally, you know, the human body is not able to quickly compensate for that. And you get some of those symptoms. Why don't we just kind of run through what the symptoms are real quick? Absolutely. So, you know, on the mild end of the spectrum, 
you're talking headache, nausea, feeling lazy, not feeling well, and then you start getting into some vomiting, um, like severe headache, uh, you can get dehydrated from all the vomiting. Poor sleep is a really common symptom. And honestly, one of the first things I notice if I'm starting out at a pretty high altitude is I, I don't get great sleep that first night. On the severe end of the spectrum, you can get what's called high altitude cerebral edema. And really that's that's an issue of Mount Everest and Kilimanjaro and those kinds of places. But people do get it at altitudes where, you know, you might be hunting 10,000, 11,000, 12,000 feet, maybe in Colorado. Uh, and so it's something to be aware of. And, and if things get really out of hand and, and you start developing high altitude cerebral edema, you're looking at coordination issues, maybe difficulty walking, confusion, um, like if your hunting buddy all of a sudden is just not acting right and he's been suffering from some altitude sickness, that's really like a emergency. That's when if you, you can get down the mountain, do it. But if not, that's the time to, to bust out your locator beacon or spot or Zolio or whatever you have. Cause that's, that's clearly life threatening. And then there's a, there's really a separate physiologic process that leads to something called high altitude pulmonary edema. It's pretty rare, but it does happen. I actually ran into a guy that had this when I was in college and he was actually deer hunting in the Sierras. But what happens is you start developing a buildup of fluid on the lungs. And so if you had a sensation of you're drowning, like you just can't get a deep breath, coughing a lot, coughing up any kind of pink frothy sputum, that's also kind of like a life-threatening manifestation of altitude. And that would be a reason to A, get down the mountain immediately if you can, or B, uh, you got to call for help because that, that can quickly be life-threatening. I was surprised. I mean, they're, they're saying 12 to 20 hours on, on that spectrum, you could be dead. So oh, I mean, yeah, there's, Not yeah there's no delay there. And it's rare, but you never know. Maybe a hunt planned up in this high basin in Colorado and you get up there and you start feeling bad and you're all alone. Or maybe you've got a hunting buddy with you. And so just having an idea of you know what can happen and the severity um, I think is important. And we'll get into you know prevention and treatment and stuff a little bit here. But I think it's helpful to kind of set the stage for what are we dealing with exactly um, and, you know, when does that risk happen? We need to know uh, what the symptoms are, what we're looking for, and really how if we don't make adjustments to where we are, what we're doing, how that can impact us going forward. I think a really kind of good number to keep in mind is you know, 10,000 feet. Personally, if I know I'm going to be spending a lot of time above 10,000 feet, I start to factor in altitude into my plans. And we can get a little bit more into what that means. But, you know, some folks are going to be much more susceptible and they may start experiencing symptoms down at eight or 9,000 feet. A lot of people are going to start to have at least mild symptoms above 10,000 feet. And so, you know, that's a lot of our high country early season kind of stuff. I mean, I was in Nevada last week. It was 9,800 feet, which is, you don't necessarily associate that with Nevada, but you can find it anywhere, I guess. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting. Altitude sickness is pretty well studied. There's some of the nitty gritty biochemical details that medicine and science are not quite sure on. Um, but essentially what happens is as we increase in altitude, the partial pressure of oxygen is lower. The air is basically thinner. And so you have to breathe more to get the same amount of oxygen extracted out of the air for your body. When you do that, at the same time, you actually lose more CO2 than is normal. Normally, you're breathing out CO2. It's kind of the byproduct of metabolism throughout the body. Uh, but the faster you breathe, that CO2 is lost faster than that gain in oxygen. And what happens is you slightly change the pH or the acidity of your blood. 
and our body keeps the pH in a very, very narrow range. You go much out of that range and you're, you know, sick in the intensive care unit. And so essentially as we go up in altitude, our pH is thrown off ever so slightly, but it's enough to start causing these symptoms. Certain people, it's enough to let things get really out of hand. You can get really sick. What our body does in order to counteract that at least this is the best, you know, understanding of medicine and science today is that our kidneys will start making adjustments for that pH and we excrete more base in the form of bicarbonate into the urine to slightly bring our pH back to normal. But that actually takes it takes a bit of time. Really it takes 2 3 sometimes even more days to fully acclimate to fully adjust our blood's pH back to normal. What I found really interesting when I was kind of taking a deeper dive in medical school into this is um what matters is actually where you sleep. Have a base camp at 9000 feet and you go up and hunt at 11000 feet, maybe even 12000 feet all day and you come back down to your base camp, that elevation where you sleep is really what matters and what um, kind of confers your level of risk. So you can go up over a pass and come down and camp somewhere else and be totally fine. But if you were to camp up there at 12,000 feet and try to spend the night, probably run into to more issues. Oh, super interesting. I can see how when your body's at rest, metabolically working harder. Yeah. I don't know you know, exactly why that happens, but they've studied this enough and it, it just matters where you sleep, which kind of you know, if you're planning like a high country hunt, it sounds great to like wake up, get out of your tent, glass from your big tall glassing knob. But if you're someone who's had altitude sickness in the past, uh, or you're worried about it, or you've never really been at that high of altitude, it, it's honestly better to have a lower base camp, hike up to your glassing knob rather than sleep up there, especially as you get above that 10,000 feet into the 11,000 foot range. You'll do a lot better if you have a little bit lower of a base camp. Great tip. What what else can help us other than time accumulate to altitude? Onyx Hunt is the number one GPS hunting app in the industry. And one reason they're leading is because they're continually providing updates to the Onyx Hunt app. Updates like the new Onyx in-dash navigation suite. From the time you slide into the seat of your vehicle, Viewing Onyx Hunt with CarPlay and Android Auto allows you to easily flow from Onyx to the road in front of you, ensuring you know exactly where you are and how to get where you're heading. Want directions to a certain point in the Onyx Hunt app, but don't want to keep glancing at your phone? Use the Navigate To feature to navigate to your saved waypoints. This is true off-road navigation for hunters. You can now use the Onyx Hunt app hands-free and have access to your map markups, public-private boundaries, routing, offline maps, and more. Do it all from the seat of your truck. If you're ready to make the jump, save 20% by using the code ROCKCAST at checkout. There's kind of two main categories of prevention, if you will. Once you get altitude sickness, the medications and, and really things don't work that well. You're kind of hosed unless you drop in altitude. So I think prevention is huge. The best kind of studied and the, this, the easiest, most simplest way uh, is to acclimate and go up slowly in altitude. And they've actually studied this down to how much elevation you should gain uh, before like resting for the night and that kind of thing. So general rule of thumb on, you know, if you're someone who's very worried about altitude sickness or you've never been at really high altitude, you don't really want to go up more than 1,600 feet per day once you're going, you know, above that 8,500, 
you know, 9,000 foot range, which is really easy to break. I mean, you know, how many of your good high country spots are you gaining two, 3,000 feet in elevation to get up there? So that, if you really want to be cautious, don't go up more than 1,600 foot a day. And better yet, spend a day at the trailhead acclimating. So for instance, say you're going to go up to this basin and your camp's at about 10,000, 10,500 feet. If the trailhead's at 8,500 or 9,000 feet, best bet, spend the first night at the trailhead, your body will start, you know, acclimating. And then say, you know, there's no way to camp halfway up the mountain. You got to go all the way to camp. Ideally, you'd say, okay, I'm starting at say 9,000 feet. I'm going to camp at 10.6 and not go, you know, any higher than that. Or if I'm starting at 8,000 feet, I'm only going to go up to 9.6, spend a night there and then continue on. If you have to go much further than that, it just means you need to spend more time at that base camp acclimating. Not so much an issue for hunters. Like I can't imagine a whole lot of scenarios where you're spending much time at 11,000, 12,000 feet camping, but I'm sure there are guys out there who are doing that. And it just, you know, it pays to, to spend a little extra time acclimating, especially if you know you've had altitude sickness before, or you might be sensitive to it. Especially since the only thing that you can do is drop altitude once you get sick. Prevention is definitely better than the cure, especially when you only have a week to do something. Absolutely. And if you're, you know, driving from back east and this is your week or two weeks of vacation time, the last thing you want is to just feel totally miserable and not even want to hunt. And that might have been prevented from just sleeping the night at the trailhead, maybe taking an extra day to acclimate before before really going up to your final destination. The other option, there are prescription medications that can help prevent altitude sickness. Again, these are not over-the-counter, so you'd have to get a prescription from your doctor. Uh, the first one, which is really kind of the gold standard, is acetazolamide, and the brand name of that is Diamox. It's something that you would take starting the day before you go up and continue it until you're you know coming down the mountain. It's like a twice-a-day medication. Essentially, it's a diuretic or a water pill, and it forces your kidneys to excrete more base. And so you're kind of like pre-acclimating artificially. I actually, you know, took that medication. I had a hunt where we were going from, I think the trailhead was about 7,000, and the lowest we could really camp was about 10,800. And so I had a feeling that was going to make me feel pretty poorly. I took it. It was great. I had honestly never felt better up at high altitude. And so, you know, you got to talk to your doctor before doing that. You know, there can be interactions with other medications or side effects, but that's one good option. You can take dexamethasone, which is a steroid. That one is kind of like second choice if for some reason you couldn't take the first choice medication. Um, And I'm not sure if they fully understand why that one works. But suffice to say, you know, say this is your second trip up there, you know you've had altitude sickness in the past, you're worried about it, but there's not another option, definitely be worth it to talk to your doctor about getting a, a prescription medication. I know I'm, I'm doing a hunt in a couple weeks, and we're camping around 10,000, hunting a lot around 11. I'm going to get a prescription for Diamox. I, just, I know I already feel much better. I sleep better. I don't get that headache and nausea on the first day, so... It's definitely something worth considering. Yeah, especially I think when time's short, you know, anything you can do to in your prep to help you. So when you get there, you don't have to spend those precious couple days necessarily at the trailhead. Absolutely. And, you know, we have so much time and money and effort and hope wrapped up in all these hunts. Anything we can do to increase our chance of having a, a good hunt and a good time is, is worth looking into. So, Well, you only get one chance to be healthy, I guess. So anything that you do, you should be talking to your doctor anyways, probably before you head out. Yeah, that's for sure.
That kind of brings up a, another good point. Being in shape, it's actually a common misconception that if you're in better shape, you won't get altitude sickness or you have a lower chance. It's kind of strange, but being in good shape actually increases your risk of having altitude sickness. And they don't know exactly why that is. If I had to guess, I think I would think it's because if you're in good shape, you've been running, you've been doing your cardio, you feel comfortable maybe pushing your body beyond what it can really handle up there because the air is thinner and you can breathe as much as you, you know, huff and puff as much as you want, but it's just not the same as exercising down at sea level. And so absolutely be in the best shape you can. Uh, you'll have a, you know, more enjoyable hunt, but don't think that that's going to, you know, really protect you from altitude sickness because it's a totally different thing. Just to circle back, we're talking about symptoms that make you feel like you're hungover, basically. A lot of times associating that maybe with something else and we're not recognizing it actually that we're starting to come down with something and we're not taking the precautions early enough to prevent further damage. Absolutely. And I would say, you know, if you started to feel some of those mild symptoms, definitely you want to stay hydrated. Again, a lot of this happens at the level of the kidneys. You want to give your kidneys plenty of of water to work with. You don't necessarily need to overdo it. I wouldn't say X gallons per day or, or anything, you know, too crazy like that, but, you know, absolutely stay hydrated. Um, I usually bring some Tylenol or some ibuprofen, just something over the counter for a little mild headache. Um, sometimes drinking a cup of coffee just helps with that too. But again, just kind of taking it easy in camp, giving yourself time to acclimate, build that into your, you know, your plan for the week if you can. Uh, and you're just much more likely to feel better throughout the hunt. Worst case scenario, you just feel better and maybe you know have a little bit less time to hunt. Best case scenario, maybe you save your hunt and you actually get to stay up on the mountain. Great point. There's there's really no downside. There's only only upside. So once you are actually having altitude sickness, say you're you're throwing up or you just feel terrible, really the only treatment that works at that point is to descend in elevation. And you want to descend at least 1,000 feet in elevation. That's kind of where a significant difference in the amount of oxygen is going to help alleviate your symptoms. The Rockcast is also powered by MagView Gear. Step up your digiscoping game with the most streamlined digiscoping adapter in the industry. MagView pioneered a new era of digiscoping with its universal minimalistic spotting scope and binocular adapters. The system is designed to eliminate the frustrations and inconveniences found in traditional digiscoping systems. MagView's multifunctional system consists of three interchangeable designs, the S1 spotting scope adapter, the B1 binocular adapter, and the MagView phone plate. All MagView systems create an incredibly strong, stable digiscoping platform and only require a super thin stainless steel plate adhered to the phone to secure it to the optic. No more bulky phone cases, no more optic specific adapters. MagView is the digiscoping choice for minimalist hunters looking for one adapter to fit most in-class optics. Many Rockslide members and staff have chosen the MagView system. You can see our in-depth review at rockslide.com and the Rockslide YouTube channel. To discover more about MagView gear, visit magviewgear.com for full specification, installation videos, and tips and tricks. Start capturing your own MagView moments today. If you go down a thousand feet and you still feel terrible, you probably need to descend even more. You know, unfortunately, those medications really are not going to save you at that point. You can't really just have them in your pack and then be like, oh, I'll take them if I feel sick. It's kind of all or nothing. And so either you acclimate and or you take the medications 
or you have to just take the risk of, well, if I start getting sick up there, I have to come down the mountain. And kind of as we, we talked about earlier, it's not something you can necessarily muscle through when things get severe. Things can get truly life-threatening. So yeah, descend about a thousand feet. And then, you know, if you're not feeling better, keep going down, sleep at that lower elevation. The biggest thing to remember is, you know, one, you have to sleep there. Two, you're basically waiting for your kidneys to stabilize the amount of base that they're secreting. So whether you're doing that with medication or just the time lapse that it takes for your body to self-adjust to that level that they're doing is the only thing you can do. Absolutely. You know, I guess to summarize, um, one thing, had altitude sickness in the past or you've never been at high altitude, you really want to take note and prepare the best you can either through acclimating slowly or in combination, you know, or in addition to taking um, some of those preventative medications and try not to acclimate too much. Remember, it's the elevation you're sleeping at tends to, you know, confer risk of getting altitude sickness or not. And then if someone, if you or your hunting partner is developing pretty severe altitude sickness, you really have to descend on the mountain. Uh, It's not something really worth toughing out. It's miserable. You won't even want to hunt. So just, you know, cut your losses, descend, and maybe pick a new hunting area. Not only is it not going to get better, but it can get worse in a, in a hurry for you there. You want to be active in detection and descent, I guess. Yep. All right. Excellent topic. I'm glad that you uh, let us know. A lot of us are headed to the high country here for these upcoming hunts. Um, if somebody wants to get a hold of you or to learn more about altitude sickness, uh, you got some places they can find you at there? Not really on social media, but I'm on Rockslide. My username is Will Fry, F-R-Y-E-027. Feel free to shoot me a PM or a message and I'm, I'm happy to answer any questions or, or help out. All right, Will. Hey, we appreciate your time and uh, education you gave us learning how important that altitude sickness is and and how common it is yeah thanks for having me on sam a quick reminder of Rockslide's best hunt photo contest this isn't a best bull buck or ram contest but a best photo contest check the show notes for links to all the rules and criteria and get your photo entered today there are four separate contests elk mule deer whitetail deer and sheep Sponsors have been super generous with their prizes. Don't miss your chance to show off your prize and your photography skills. All right, moving on to reviews. We're lucky enough to catch up with Jaden Bells in between his hunting season up on the mountain. Jaden's going to share his latest review with us. Welcome to the show, Jaden. Hey, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to talk about this thing with you. All right, so what do you got? What what kind of shelter did you get this review on? Uh, so this year I ran the... Uh, Argali Owyhee one-person tent. Um, this Argali tent is kind of made for that light and fast uh, solo hunter. Um, and uh, lucky for me, I had a couple bear hunts planned that I used it on. I also had some deer scouting and uh, a ewe sheep hunt uh, up in the high country. So this guy got uh, worked over pretty good. And, and if anyone spent some time uh, in the high country this summer and uh, spring, they know, dude, it has been some inclement weather it has just been everything from you know thunder and lightning and wind and rain and snow and um i was really pleased with this tent uh i had to learn a couple of uh intricacies and how to make the tent perform like it should um because you do kind of have to be more of an active participant when you're running these um you know single walled tents uh especially when you have a lot more moisture in the in the air and on the ground um to just kind of improve that airflow but man this Hawaii tent um 
you know, held up great through all those conditions. Um, the thing is only about the size of a Nalgene bottle and it's about a pound for just the tarp itself. Um, and I just used it pitched with a trekking pole and, uh, that made it just super, super lightweight. Now I will say most of the summer trips that I did, it was kind of buggy. So I threw in the insert as well. That's another pound. So you're running two pounds, but the thing that I like most about this whole setup is that it, um, like I said, it's just like analgene for each of the two pieces of it. So you can literally put it wherever you need to put it in your pack instead of when you're running all the poles and stuff, uh, in some of these other lightweight, like two person tents. Um, the other thing that I noticed, and, and I have run some of this, uh, some of the other Argali tents in the past, the Absorca I did a review on in 2022. Um, but that, that fabric that is used uh, by Argali on these things is like specifically a no sag fabric. And uh, I, with all the rain and snow and sleet we got on these hunts, we got to actually see that like in comparison to my buddy's tents. It was pretty sweet. Uh, as theirs are like sitting there flapping in the wind, like a wet paper sack, mine is still taut. Um, so that was one of the things that I think, you know, especially as solo people who are, um, hunting in inclement weather or just, you know, especially you're just planning on there being some rain or thunderstorms or whatever. Um, it really stands out above the crowd in those kinds of conditions. Um, and I really liked it, liked it when it, uh, got really dirty nasty outside it also kept its pitch tight i even could run like a little p cord on the inside and dry stuff out um on the inside while it was raining real hard so um yeah just been real pleased with this thing uh i think it's going to be my go-to kind of one person solo mission tent um it was really fun to run sounds like an awesome tent what about the floor space what what kind of size you got in that for two pounds four ounces now that's a really good question i'm a pretty small statured guy. I'm only like five, seven. And, uh, I was able to pit, put all of myself and all of my gear inside the tent proper. We had, uh, w- including my bow, we had some pikas and stuff running around outside the tent. And so I wanted to make sure they didn't chew through like my strings on my bow and stuff like that. And I was able to put everything inside the nest actually inside the insert with me. It's pretty good space. Now I do think if you're a tall dude, if you're a big person, um, that you might notice that there's a little less space. Obviously, if you're up there, like six, four, six, five, six, six, like you're probably going to get a little tighter than I ran. Um, but, uh, just for the average person, um, I, it was pretty dang good. Uh, the other thing I ended up doing is we opened up the fly on both sides and me and my buddy could sit inside the tent, um, and make a meal in between the two of us. So you can have two dudes sitting upright inside the tent at, at one time, um, and still have a uh, pretty good rain cover out of it. So yeah, we got to test it for that kind of space. And, and that worked out pretty good. Granted, like it's a one person tent. You're not going to, it's not the Taj Mahal here at two pounds. Uh, you know, that's part of the reason that we can cut some weight is, is cut down on how much extra room we have. But if you got enough to be comfortable, especially in inclement weather, I mean, that's a big thing. Like you talked about the tent staying taunt when the weather turns cooler after you've pitched it when it's been warmer is a big thing and it's hard to sleep when that thing's rattling around at night as the weather cools off so nice to hear that the fabric has uh, performed well and keeps the elements out too the one thing that i will say is uh 
you got to add some airflow, pitch it a little higher than you expect off the ground. Um, if you're just running the tarp itself so that you get good, uh, airflow underneath it and reduce some of that condensation. Um, it's just that it, it, it's not just this tent. It's any of these single walled, uh, tarp style tents that are going to have that condensation. Um, so you just got to plan for that. You can't just, uh, forget about it and pitch it as normal. So, uh, that's my only word, word to the wise there. And what did you find worked for you? How, how far off the ground? Do you have like an average you, you look at? Yeah, about like three inches, you know, three, four inches, basically as wide as you, if you put your hand, uh, flat on the ground, um, and then tilt it up about that much space is all you really needed. Uh, I didn't have any, and it rained on us hard when I did that. I never had any issue with water or anything getting in under there. So, um, that worked out good. Just, yeah, three, four five inches of, of space. Sounds like an awesome shelter. I um, appreciate you coming on and cutting some time out of your hunting season to lay it all out for us. Thanks. Appreciate you having me on. You can find Jaden Bell's full write-up along with thousands of other top gear reviews at rockslide.com. That's R-O-K-S-L-I-D-E dot com. All right, guys, I got to run. I'm just finishing packing up and uh, picking up my old army buddy at the airport. But let's close out with some news coming out of Colorado. A woman walking her dog in Colorado spooked a cow moose, who then in turn charged. The moose headbutted and stomped both the woman and the dog. The woman was taken to the hospital, and the dog had minor injuries. This was the third attack by moose in Boulder County just this year. Just another reminder to stay safe out there. Until next time, this has been Sam Weaver.